Welcome to episode 279 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. We're getting after part three of our whole little mini-series of divine decrees. We're talking about the logical order of the decrees of God. So we're building successively on where we've been the past couple weeks. Everybody should go back and listen to those. Actually, everybody should go back and listen to all the episodes, except the beginning ones. Yeah. We did have somebody who went back and listened to all of the episodes recently made me aware of the fact that they went and listened to all 270 some odd episodes. And I was like, why would you do that? <laughs> but I appreciate the support. And um, it's always fun to hear people are investing time in, in kind of going on this. I'm get, I'll get all like super emerging going on this journey together with us. Like I just turned into like a seeker sensitive pastor, but like we've grown and learned and, and changed throughout the For show. Sure. So it's, it's cool to see people going back and kind of learning with us as they progress through it. So yeah, that yeah. was fun. It was fun actually. Shout out to that brother who made us aware of that by posting a little note in the Facebook group. One of the things that I appreciated and that also scares me is when somebody references all these little markers along our journey that I've just totally forgotten about. References we've made, things we've talked about. I do yeah. remember that I of course have affirmed multiple times popcorn with the coconut oil. So it's that true. I'm totally good with now, but that made the list among some other things I, I just completely forgot about. So it was wonderful <laughs> to go down that little memory lane. Yes. And of course, like speaking of affirmations and denials, this would normally be the time we jump into them, but we're gonna do something a little bit different today. I know there's something that's on your heart that you'd like to talk about and mention again, talking about being on a journey and so many brothers and sisters have been with us for a long time. And so before we actually get to this lovely topic of the logical order, there's something else that we wanted to talk about. Yeah. So I wanted to share something that has happened recently in my life. Um, on Wednesday, we were recording this on Sunday, uh, February 20th. And on Wednesday, February 16th, I got a phone call late in the evening uh, that my mother, uh, who lives in Minnesota or lived in Minnesota, has uh, had a, a pretty massive heart attack. Um, and at the time of the phone call, I was told she wasn't going to make it. And so I had a chance to say goodbye to her over the phone, although she probably wasn't aware at that point. Um, there probably wasn't much consciousness going on. Um, I had an opportunity to say goodbye to her, and then the doctors withdrew support. And about an hour and a half later, she died. And the reason I'm sharing this um, on the show isn't um, just to get it off my chest or anything like that, although it's it's nice to be able to talk about it, and it's nice to share about her. But, you know, we're going through this series on theology. And right now, particularly, we're talking about divine providence. And, you know, I think sometimes people who are very theologically minded fall into this trap of just trying to, like, fill their minds with fancy thoughts and theological jargon. And, and um, you know, sometimes we get real jazzed up about having good arguments and making good arguments and, and overcoming bad arguments. And all of those things are fine and they're fine to be excited about. But I think one of the things that we constantly need to be going back to as theologians, um, whether that's kind of capital T, I do this as a profession or just lowercase R.C. Sproul style, everyone's a theologian, um, theologians, is we study this because this is who our God is, right? We study this because he's called us and he's revealed to us 
who he is, what he makes known about himself in the Bible, um, what what our duties are, and then also what what reality is. And, you know, I've shared before in the past um, that I had a friend in college uh, who was killed shortly after college and her husband at the funeral stood up and spoke and, and really eloquently talked about how, you know, he he could have come to this tragedy thinking that there was no purpose and no meaning in it, but he was able because of his theological training and his background to come to this tragedy, realizing that God, even though we usually don't understand the purpose or the reason behind tragedy, um, God always has a purpose. And so especially, you know, as this happened and I've reflected over the past few days now, it really is true that the doctrine of predestination, the doctrine of, of divine providence is a sweet balm to the soul of those who are mourning. Um, because you can walk into a situation like this, or I should say this situation walks into you, right? Cause you don't see it coming. You're not the active one in this. This is coming upon you and you can either respond to it I think, you know, a lot of people respond to it with kind of this, why God, why me, why now um, mindset. And I, I don't want to bash on people who who react differently. Everybody has a different um, threshold and a different background. But for me, my first instinct when I heard the news, when I uh, when I realized that it was real, when it was really happening, um, my first instinct was to turn to the God of providence and trust him and to thank him that he is superintending all things. And that even though I don't understand why this is happening now, right? I mean, this is two weeks before my first child who would have been her first grandchild, first full grandchild. I have half siblings and she has stepchildren, but her first full grandchild, this is two weeks before he was to be born. Um, my first instinct was to press into the providence of God. And the only thing I can attribute that to is, is obviously the Holy Spirit has, has impressed this upon me. But this is, this is why we say that you need to marinate yourself in the scriptures. You need, to, you need to bathe in the Bible, in the word of God, and in the good theological tradition that we have. Because when it really comes down to it and you're pushed to the wire, you're going to react instinctively to something. You're going to react without a lot of thought because it kind of wells up within you. And it's, I mean, go figure Jesus, the wisest, smartest person ever out of, out of the heart or out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Right. And you have to put stuff into your heart. And for me, the last several years now, I think, I don't even know, I can't do math on the fly, but the, the, the last 290 or 280 episodes roughly of the Reformed Brotherhood and thinking Reformed theological thoughts and studying the Reformed confessions and reading the scriptures with the testimony of the Reformed tradition, helping me to understand it has brought me to a place where my first instinct and what came out of my heart when I heard the news of my mom's passing was not despair. Uh, it was grief, but it was grief that was tinged with, tinted with praise that God is good. And that even though I don't understand what's happening and why it's happening and how it's good, I understand and can confess that it's good. So I, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to make the whole episode about this. We could certainly do a whole episode on grieving and, and death and providence. Um, and someday probably I'm sure that that will come up, but I, I thought that it was 
useful. It's useful to me to verbalize it, but I also thought it would be useful for people to hear that this is, this is why we do theology. It's not to stuff our heads with knowledge. It's not to be able to construct crafty arguments and to overcome objections. All of those things are important and all of those are reasons why we should do theology. But ultimately we do theology because God has called us to know him and to trust him. And he has revealed himself to us for that purpose. And the way that we can accomplish that purpose, especially when it's the most important, is by taking the time to study and to, to, to seek God in the scriptures and to really immerse ourselves day in and day out to meditate on that word, right? There, there were a hundred different lines from the Psalms that came to my mind as soon as I heard this news. And that's only something you can get by really devoting yourselves to that study and to that task. So I'm immensely thankful that God has prepared me for this in the way he did, because this is, this is the loss of a parent is one of the hardest things emotionally that anyone goes through in their life in, in most cases. Um, and, and it's, you know, there's going to be times where it's really raw and really tough and really hard. Um, there's already, there's already times where it's been overwhelming, but when you are able to lift your head up out of that overwhelming place and look to see Jesus and the fact that Jesus is the comforter, right? And that the Holy Spirit is the comforter and that God the Father has given you both of those uh, comforters and advocates to to stand in your place and to be with you um, is just an immense comfort. So... I mean, that's, that's my reflections on it. And I, I wanted that, I want this to be an encouragement to people that in the times where it doesn't feel like there's a pressing need to, to invest yourself in the scripture, that's when you need to invest yourself in the scripture, because when you have the pressing need, you're not going to have time to do it anymore. Um, there's a million other, other insights and thoughts that have come through my mind in the past couple days that I'm sure we'll get to in future episodes. But I think what I want to emphasize now is just the task of theology is an important task and we do it because God calls us to it, but he calls us to it because it's, it's useful and profitable. Um, the word of God is, is useful and profitable for all situations. And that, I, that has borne itself over and over and over again in the past five days or four days, however many it's been. Um, because just when I feel like I'm on the edge of despair, a, a passage comes to mind. And, and comfort from the scripture comes to mind. And that's really just the Holy Spirit bringing those things uh, to my mind to comfort me in this time. The great gift of theology, like we've spoken about so many times before, is that, to my, into my estimation, it is the wisdom and the counsel of God reflecting the scriptures applied into our lives by the Holy Spirit. And so I like what you said there. There's a lot of emphasis. And even if we talk, we love to get technical. There's nothing wrong with technicality. But if it just stops there, if we're not the kind of people that take what we're trying to learn and bring it into our private prayer closet where we wrestle with God over it, where we find his, try to find his heart in it, not just merely for academia or for purposes, again, of trying to construct what is some kind of way to express what you understand the Bible to believe, but... More than that, if it isn't rooted in somewhere in our lives that it becomes an ornate part of how we react, what we think about, how we process the world, and how we move through the world, even during difficult times, then it's mostly useless. I mean, like you said, there's some nobility in being able just to know things. Yeah. But to know things without wisdom 
and to know things without them being practically applied into our lives such that the reality of the way that we live comports with the reality of the way that God has disclosed himself, then that's not even like halfway there. That's not even G.I. Yeah. Joe style. You know, it's, it's really, <laughs> it's not even theology light. It's really not at all what it was intended to be. So hearing you say that reminds me of, of Proverbs 1633, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And so providence is this really beautiful doctrine that comes to us and it comes to us first as a, a practical truth and maybe secondarily in the way that we're about to speak of it, because if you understand it practically, that is enough yeah. to know that God is superintending over all and that it teaches us that we're never in the grip of blind forces. There's no fortune, chance, luck, fate, the force. All that happens to us is divinely planned and each event comes as a new summons really to trust, obey, and rejoice, knowing that all of this is for one spiritual and eternal good. To get there is a gift from God, to yeah. be able to put your full weight in trusting a situation like that. And you're right in that I think the best, best metaphor that anybody's ever given me for grief is that when you grieve, and we all grieve or will grieve, is that you're placed in the ocean and you're floating there. And sometimes the waves come upon you and they're manageable. You can withstand them. And then other times, for no particular reason, it seems, the weather shifts on you and the waves come up and they crash down over you and it feels yeah. as if you're going to go under. And I think that that's fair because as we spoke about a little bit before we started recording, this kind of separation, temporary or otherwise, was just is otherworldly because it was never meant to be. It's abnormal. Yeah. So we just struggle. Everybody struggles with it because... It's not really part of uh, the essential nature of what it means to be a human being. So the fact that yeah. Jesus Christ has repaired that in a way that's irrevocable and that God is superintending over that repair uh, as he orchestrates all events of life is an amazing comfort. It just doesn't mean that it's easy. What it does mean, though, is that there's real comfort there yeah. in the midst of difficulty. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's dive into our topic. So this probably, if you've read the uh, little title of the episode or you're trying to figure out what we're talking about, we say the logical order of decrees. This is one of, another one of those um, topics that feels so abstracted from reality that it can almost feel like, why are we bothering to talk about this? And to be fair and transparent, right, Herman Bovink, who's who's probably one of my theological heroes and is usually one of my go-to sources, even Bovink basically says in his dogmatics, I'm paraphrasing a bit here, but basically says, like, this is a question that's not worth asking. And I respectfully disagree, and we'll talk about why. But this is a topic that I think it takes a, a little bit of work for people to understand why it's so important. But the reality is... Everyone, even the great Herman Bovink, who thinks it's a stupid question, actually holds a position uh, in this debate, whether they like it or not, because the, the fact that we are creatures um, and have to think uh, discursively or we think in terms of like words and sentences, we, we piece things together in terms of logical constraints. There's no way around answering the question of God, the logical order of God's decrees. Um, as we've kind of teased out a little bit in the past, like we, we actually hold that God only has one decree. There, right. there is only one decree, but in order for limited 
discursive creatures to think through and to reflect on that decree. We actually have to think about it in sort of this logical sequence. So, I mean, we'll take a little bit of time to sort of talk about what we even mean by logical order versus chronological order. But, you know, I'm sure there are some people who are listening to this who either have read Bob Inc. Um, or have been exposed to a debate on the internet. And anytime this comes up, invariably someone quotes Bob Inc. when he says, this isn't a question worth, worth asking. Um, and I get why he says that. Maybe we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later. But this isn't a question, whether it's a question worth asking or not is irrelevant because it's a question that asks itself. We have no option except to approach and to grapple with the fact that God, God's decree uh, cannot be comprehended by creatures except right. by, in some sense, separating them out. Because this is exactly, this is the way we think. Even making a sentence trying to uh, trying to verbalize what that one decree might be. Um, you know, sometimes people will take uh, their their view or they'll take what they think is a, a singular decree view and they'll kind of try to make a sentence that includes all the parts. But even even putting all the parts into a sentence slices it up and divides it up and puts it in a certain order and has certain relationships within that sentence. So it's not something that can be avoided. Um even if we don't like to ask the question because we we'd rather not uh you know i think usually when people say they don't want to ask the question or they think it's not a worthwhile question there's a sort of overly pious attempt in my opinion to restrain oneself um from what god has revealed and that itself is a good impulse but the fact of the matter is that god has revealed that he has made a decree and he's revealed that in human language, which automatically puts it into some of these logical categories. So we'll we'll get into that. Um, but before we do, Jesse, did you have any initial thoughts before we dive down the rabbit hole? No, I think that that's a, a really helpful introduction. I think I'd like to think that sometimes, with what Bavink said there, that he was just after kind of exactly what you said. Like it's yeah. such a high and lofty question that to us, like just leave it alone. But it doesn't remove the fact that there's like real pastoral ramifications to this. Pastoral right. in the sense that like this again is a comfort to us. And while we we're not our, what we're endeavoring here is not to somehow like pull back the curtain and show all of the inner working parts with a like complete clarity and complete like to make them all entirely cogent, but instead we're able to kind of again just kind of dip into that a little bit to talk about why this matters uh, in all times. And you know, especially in a world where again we're we are creatures that live in a chronological environment. So we think in discrete terms and who hasn't with anything in their life been concerned about the future, been anxious about what's going on in the world. You've got to ask this question. In other words, I like what you're saying. You're basically saying, listen, you, everybody is coming up with an answer to this question, whether you believe it or not. The outworkings of that, of how you handle certain things in your life, including things like stress, worry, and anxiety. Um, so you might as well have a really, right. you might as well have a disciplined approach to it, understand some things and then let that inform your heart. Yeah. In a lot of ways, this is kind of similar, you know, when you're talking about the no creed, but the Bible people and how that creed is actually a, a creed in itself. Uh, and it's not in the Bible. It's kind of a similar right. thing. It's like, there are lots of people out there who want to act as though they don't hold to some sort of confession. Um, and the reality is that they do. And the fact that they're not conscious of the fact that they do is a liability on their part. It's a similar kind of thing. This is either something we can recognize all of us have a view on and we can think about that view and cautiously and carefully articulate it. Or more often than not, if we refuse to talk about it or refuse to think about it, 
we end up having a poorly put together view that isn't coherent, which will cause all sorts of other issues later on in, in the system, which is the main reason actually that we that I chose because I was determining the order of these episodes. The main reason I chose to do this after our discussion last week about predestination is because I think the people who don't think carefully about this, there's an, an inconsistency between how they view predestination and how they view the decrees. And right they, they flip it around when they're talking about the decrees in terms of how the decrees work versus how predestination works. So we can get into that. The, the, the views we're talking about, most commonly if you read about this on the internet, is going to be a view called superlapsarianism, or you might hear it called prelapsarianism. Uh, and the opposing view is uh, called supralapsarianism, or sometimes called infralapsarianism. And although there are some nitty-gritty details uh, involving other elements of God's decree, the main the main focus of the discussion and the main the main disagreement point is the relation of God's decree to allow the fall, as it's related to God's decree to elect and and. There's implications about what he's even what he's even electing to and from that depends on how you answer this question. And so we need to take a little bit of time to talk about what is this concept of logical orders, because nobody this is predominantly an argument or a discussion that happens within Calvinist circles. Although, as I've said, I think it would be foolish for us not to recognize that other views automatically commit themselves to one position or the other. Uh, predominantly other views commit themselves to the infralapsarian view. Um, but there are some in different traditions that would actually hold something similar to a superlapsarian uh, or superlapsarian view. We're not talking about the actual chronological in time order that things happen. Right. Nobody disagrees that people were created before they fell. Nobody disagrees on that. Nobody disagrees that election, which we say takes place prior to creation, that that happened prior to creation. Nobody disagrees with that. Um, there's nobody that I know of who affirms uh, an actual election theology that would say God didn't have anything in mind until after the fall, and then he chose who he would, who he would save. It's just not a coherent position that people take. When we're talking about logical uh, order, though, what we're talking about is the relationship in the way of thinking, the way that things have to unfold in order to make coherent sense, not necessarily um, not necessarily the way they actually unfold. And here's an example. I think that we, we did a whole episode on this before. So if you did. just got done with the whole backlog, this is going to sound really familiar because we're probably going to cover most of the same ground. To my knowledge, neither of our view has changed significantly on this since we did that last episode. So this will be a lot of repeat. But if I decide that I want to go to the store in order to purchase, uh, let's say, eggs because I want to make an omelet. There are certain elements to this that are present. There's the action of going to the store, the intention of going to the store. There's the intention of buying eggs, and there's the intention of, of uh, making an omelet. In the logical order of things, the, uh, the making of the omelet or the desire to make an omelet is actually the first thing in the logical order. I want to make an omelet. Therefore, I must go to the store and purchase eggs. So now I have an intention to go to the store and purchase eggs. And therefore, I have an intention to go to the store, right? So the sentence, I would like to make an omelet, so I must go to the store in order to buy some eggs, actually rearranges the logical order. Or it rearranges the order, even though there's logical um, logical ordering. So the first thing would be making an omelet, 
The second would be purchasing eggs. And the third thing would be going to the store. But when I say that in a sentence, I actually have the third thing in the second spot. So this gets very complicated very fast. But in chronological order, I actually have to go to the store prior to purchasing the eggs. And then I have to purchase the eggs prior to making the omelet. And so, so a lot of times the logical order of things actually doesn't reflect the chronological order of things. So also when we're talking about the uh, logical ordering of the decrees, sometimes some systems would say that the logical order of the decrees is actually the same way that it unfolds in time. Some would say it's, it's the opposite of the way it unfolds in time. And I think that we have to be careful not to depend too much on the unfolding in time to determine our logical order because there are some implications to that that we have to be careful of. But we have to get out of our mind that this is related to some sort of actual sequential order that this happened and then this happened and then this happened. Instead, what we have to remember is we're talking about God's singular decree And within that decree, because we are creatures, we have to sort of think about this in a logical, consistent fashion. We can't think about all of it at one time in a single simple thought. It's not something we're capable of. So we, we have to slice up the decree and the different, the different uh, facets of the decree in order to comprehend them and to think about them. And that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about what actually is going on in God right? This isn't an analogical anthropomorphic kind of thing. We're talking about how it is that God has revealed his decree to us and how it is we as creatures are to talk about and think about that. And again, there are implications that will will tease out and unfold a little bit as we go. Right. It's helpful, of course, to qualify that any discussion of order like we're about to have here, what we're trying to do is still affirm that an omniscient God, as you said, does not need to do things in sequential order as we do. Yet there is generally, as we understand, it, he's revealed it, a logical order the way in which God works, you know, the way in which God saves people from sin and its consequences. So there's this is like at the center of a wheel with so many spokes that emanate from it, because what we're going to find is you can speak of many particular examples, some of which we've already covered in our conversations before, like the order of Salutis or the order of salvation. That's where you find this primarily coming to rest in the way that you're talking about, where you can find really good spiritual examples of the place where sometimes things do happen in a temporal order that comports with a logical order, but often they do not. And salvation is a good example of many other things, which might be outside the scope of this conversation, but I encourage listeners to go back and revisit some of those conversations as well. Yeah. So broadly speaking, the the two main views, as I said, are supra, are super or prelapsarian. And so that prelapsus is the Latin word for fall. And so what we're talking about is the decree of God to elect and its reference to the fall. So a prelapsarian view would be that God has decreed to elect prior logically to his decree to fall. And so in this view, God is looking at a unfallen, he's considering an unfallen humanity Uh, because he's not logically, the fall is not in view. And so this group of humanity that he is considering and electing out of is considered as an unfallen group. And so he, he chooses some in that group to be his people, to be elected unto 
whatever we want to call it. Commonly, people call it salvation, but I don't think that's technically correct because they're not being saved from anything at this point in the decrees. Um, but this group of people that he's elected to be his people and then a group of people that he's elected to be not his people. So he divides this unfallen uh, group of people, this unfallen humanity into two distinct groups by the election to decree or the decree of election, the decree to elect. And then he um, and then he decrees to allow the fall. And so now both of these groups elect and reprobate. They are decreed to allow the fall. And so now he's considering the elect who are fallen and the reprobate who are fallen. And then he decrees the, the means and the manner of salvation. Right. And there's a decree to create in there and that has some implications, but it's, it's kind of secondary to the point of the conversation. So now he's decreed the means of salvation for the elect. And he's decreed that the elect will make use of those means of salvation. And he's decreed that the unelect or the reprobate will not make use of that, of those means of salvation. And so that's that's the system we're left with. We start off with an, a new, basically a neutral group of humanity, a neutral lump of humanity. It's then divided into two groups. Both of those groups are subjected to the fall. They both are allowed to fall um, or allowed to be comprehended as fallen. And then they are part of that group is brought out of that estate and part of right. that group is left in that estate. But the main, the main point uh, the, of this is that the fall, and the reason that people gravitate to this view is that the fall is no longer, um, the, the decree of election is no longer seen as responsive to the fall. We'll talk right. about infralapsarian in a minute, but the, the main criticism against this view is that in this view, or the main, the main criticism against the infralapsarian view is that the, the decree to elect is somehow dependent on and responsive to the decree to allow the fall. God is saving as a response to the fall. Right. He's electing as a response to the fall because he has to do that in order to bring some out of the estate. So that's the main criticism against the infralapsarian view. And I think it's a strength of this view is that God... You know, they they take this, and a lot of times they look at this as um, the logically the first logical element in this is God decreeing to have a people of His own for His own glory. Right. So they lift up the glory of God as the chief end of God, which is a little bit of a weird way to say it, but it's kind of how it goes. The glory of God is chief, the chief aim of God's decrees, and so the way that God has decided to glorify Himself is to have a people that he chooses for himself and to have a people that he condemns and displays his wrath upon. And so everything unfolds from there. That's, that's the strength of it. There's also some liabilities I think in that, that we'll talk about, but I, I think it's, it's a reasonable view that makes sense of some of the scriptural data. And, and both of these views, neither one of these views are so manifestly wrong that we right. should divide over them, that we should um, consider people not to be Christians over them. Both of them are grounded and rooted in the scripture, and the difference has to do primarily with shades of emphasis about what we believe God's primary intention and aim is. And that that's kind of where the, the water breaks, as it were. Right. The real issue between these positions, th just to kind of summarize what you're saying there, is back to your idea of this logical order of decrees. So in the superlapsarian view... The decree of election and reprobation is logically prior to the decree to permit the fall. And in the right. infralapsarian view, the decree to permit the fall is logically prior to the decree of election and reprobation. So right. the way that I remember that, here's a little fun mnemonic, not a mnemonic, but kind of like a way to think about this is I always remember that difference as 
if you think of infra starting with the letter I and the capital I looking like, let's say it's an elevator shaft joined between two floors, it's going down, it's below. So yeah. supralapsarianism places the, the decree of predestination proper above, that's supra, the decree to permit the fall, lapsus, like you said, while infralapsarianism places the decree of predestination proper below. So it's like an elevator going down a floor, the decree to permit the fall. So now everybody will always remember the difference between those those two. But here's yeah. one thing I want to emphasize, and I'm glad that you said it this way, is that there's a lot of points of agreement on these. I've, I've seen some people get out of hand online over arguments about this as if like one view in particular means that you're somehow heretical. So points of agreement that I think might be worth just quickly glancing over. And that is in both of these, God is not the author of sin. I think it's like an important thing to remember here. That's not what we're talking about. Scripture in that philosophy, not some kind of philosophical system, not some worldview is the only source of our knowledge of God's decree on this. And that man's fallen punishment is not merely the object of God's foreknowledge, but of his decree and foreordination. Yes. And then I would say last, I would say something like faith I'm trying to cover both positions here. Faith is not the cause of the decree of election. Neither is sin the cause of the decree of reprobation. Yes. So there's there's actually a lot of common ground here. The main distinctive is exactly what you just said. It's a matter of a logical order of decrees, which is why it's worth, like you said, first starting there and thinking about what that means in contradistinction to like temporal order or chronological order, but then also what does all this mean then? Like, so, yeah. so what, I guess is the big question, right? Somebody's going to say, all yeah. right, you just talked about theology as being a practical tool for right living and right thinking. So what? Yeah. And I mean, this really does make a difference uh, in terms of how we understand and therefore how we present the gospel. So in one view, um, in, in the supralapsarian view or the prelapsarian view, God creates people in a category of elect, or he decrees to create people in the category of elect or the category of reprobate. That's the, irrespective of sin. A person is either um, either elect or they are reprobate, and sin is not in view. And so it's so, some views do kind of consider it this common, he, they separate the decree to create and the decree, this is why I said like the decree of creation plays into this. Right. Classic supralapsarianism or prelapsarianism is that God creates, decrees to create this category of elect people and the category of reprobate people. And those two, those two categories are never really considered as a single category, right? There's no, there's a neutral humanity in that God sort of has this, um, he has this concept in logical ordering, this concept of humanity that is not considering the fall. So in reference to sin, at the decree of uh, election and the decree of reprobation, humanity is neutral. The elect are not sinners. The reprobates are not sinners in reference right. to the decree. That will change how you present the gospel. And this is, this is something you'll see if pe people who tend to be very focused on election as the sort of central feature of reformed theology, the people who focus on election as election is basically the good news. The good news is that you are chosen in Christ. That's the good news. That's great news. But the the emphasis, uh, emphasis of election as the wellspring of our salvation, which is not an untrue statement, but an, I think an overemphasis on that, tipping my cards to where I stand, an overemphasis on that is a side effect of 
um, the, the prelapsarian view. And a lot of times people who hold the prelapsarian view struggle with how to present the gospel in a way that doesn't feel artificial. They're the, right. they're the people you see uh, who are debating and discussing whether or not people can tell their children that God loves them. Or they're the ones debating about whether you say, when you're presenting the gospel, whether you say Christ died for you, which mm-hmm. is not something that technically speaking a super lapsarian uh, should say from a real technical level, whether they're the people who will say, won't, won't say Christ died for you, but when presenting the gospel will say something like, if you are among the elect and you respond to the gospel accordingly, then you then Christ died for you. They'll, they'll bifurcate that out and they'll emphasize this idea that Christ only died for the elect, which again is a true statement and, and it properly understood or properly qualified is a true statement. The flip side, and we'll go into the infralapsarian view in a second here, is that the infralapsarian doesn't necessarily disagree with that, right? All of us, we're all talking, we're talking about Calvinists here typically five-point Calvinists on both sides of this. Right. But the emphasis on the fact that God created this unique category of people called the elect, irrespective of their sin, everything else that happens in the economy of redemption is really only in reference to those people. The economy of redemption doesn't really have anything to say to those who are not elect. And and those never the two shall meet, right? There's never a time when God really thinks about um, in our our way of articulating this, God, there's never a time when God really thinks about the reprobate as being in anything of the same category as the elect. There's never any logical time like that. The infralapsarian or the postlapsarian, because there is this emphasis in the logical decrees that there was a point where humans were considered as a singular whole and that all of humanity in a singular category, fell in sin, and then election happens. God chooses to save some out of that fully sinful whole. He chooses to save some of, some of them out of that. There's less of a, of a focus on parsing out whether or not this part of the economy of redemption applies to this person or not. Infralapsarians, generally speaking, are much more comfortable saying promiscuously, Christ died for you, right? And and Samuel Rutherford, honestly, I don't know which side of this he stood on. Well, t- maybe we'll talk about some confessional stuff in a minute, but I don't know which side he stood on, but he was perfectly comfortable saying Christ is dead for you, which is right. the, sort of the archaic way of saying Christ died for you. So this this way of, of looking at it, with all due respect to Herman Bovink, this has important um, implications in how we think about and and therefore how we present the gospel. It doesn't mean that there aren't superlapsarians who are comfortable saying Christ died for you to someone and acknowledging I don't actually know on an eternal sense or on a, on a technical level whether that is particularly true for you, but that's the gospel is that Christ died for you right. with kind of like usually like a little parentheses in their mind if in fact you are the elect. Right. And the, the infralapsarian says and thinks the same thing, but is usually much more comfortable leaving that if you are in fact the elect, leaving that unexpressed. So these right. are shades and nuances, but they're real things that affect how we think about the gospel. I've never once, never once in my life presented the gospel to somebody and wondered if I just told someone that God loved them when in fact he created them for damnation. Like right. I've never thought about that. Right. It's just never been on my radar, even though on a technical level, I know that that's true. We said that last week, 
right? God is not passive in the decree of reprobation, and he's not passive in reprobation taking place. He's actively withdrawing himself. But that's a different kind of emphasis that leads to a different presentation. And then that, of course, that, of course, relates to how we think about our own salvation. Do we think about our own salvation as I eternally in God's mind was part of this special class of people that everything he did in the economy of redemption applied to this class of people? Mm-hmm. Or do I think about myself in a sense where the reprobate and the elect, we all started off in the same spot? Even in the mind of God, we all started off in the same spot. Those have real implications to how we think about the gospel and how we think about salvation. Right. You're totally right about that. I would say, would you say it's fair that most kind of, let's say, lukewarm, tepid, just even keel, evangelicalism is of like by default of like an infralapsarian type of worldview, though, of course, they might take it to be more open-ended than you just described it there. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think the challenge with a lot of and again, this is what I'm talking about when I say not thinking through these views doesn't mean you don't have a view. It just means right. you haven't thought through it. Right. Most kind of run of the mill evangelicals, even of a Calvinistic stripe, like your kind of classic young reform, restless Calvinists, um, most of them actually think about this in the same way, but they think about it after the fall. So they conceptualize election and they conceptualize reprobation right. as though it's actually happening after the fall, not just that it logically precedes the fall. Yes, logically, exactly. it's, it's prior to that. And that's a side effect of not thinking through this carefully, not thinking through the fact that this, if we really affirm that God's sovereign, all of this is under his decree. All of this falls uh, falls out in time according to his eternal decree. That means we have to think about some of these things in eternity past as well. Yes. Yeah. I think that's right on. Like in... Even some of what you're saying, it was just striking me as funny a little bit because it sounds clunky, right, to the ear. Yeah. So, like when you were, you're trying to articulate both this idea of putting like qualifiers on everything, and I get the Calvinist or the Reformed person who wants to put the qualifiers on because they think that yeah. they're trying to be really true and express strong fidelity to what they understand the scriptures to say is expressed in the theology that they believe best of course, exemplifies that knowledge in the scriptures. Um, but there's something even about that in real time, as you're saying, that I was like, man, that just sounds clunky. Like that should give us a little bit of radar, like say, right. what? That doesn't seem to comport exactly with what I know that's uh, this free gift that Christ talks about, but also this love of God. So I think in some ways we all have Arminian PTSD as Reformed people, right? Because what's happened is we've gotten so used to arguing against the use of the word all that we've tend to yeah. like really put a sharp edge on some of this stuff because we got to be like, I can't allow anybody to use that word inappropriately. And so therefore, when I go out, I want to be respectful of that. I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. That's like the emphasis that we we want to have. We feel compelled to give that. But let me just say it this way. Like if I try to, to decompose or deconstruct these logical orders, just for people to hear, for us to talk about real quick, just to like say them out loud so you can hear them in your own little ears right now. If we're talking about like the infralapsarian or uh, the sublapsarian, talk about a view that has like multiple prefixes that you can yeah. just slap in there. I don't know how they got so many, but I love it. So sublapsarianism. So we have God, he's proposing to create, right? Then he permits the fall. 
then to elect to eternal life and blessedness, a great multitude out of this mass of fallen men, and to leave the others, as he left like the devil and the fallen angels, to suffer the punishment for their sins. So after all that, then comes the giving of his son for the redemption of the elect, and send the Holy Spirit to apply the elect, the redemption which was purchased in Christ. That is that inf- classic like kind of logical order for infant life Syrianism. And I would argue, like you just kind of confirmed for me, the kind of classic normative evangelical-ish jellyfish view of salvation. With, with yeah. like you, you sprinkle in like some Arminian stuff about like, you know, responding and how you do all that stuff, all that right. kind of stuff. Even provenient grace fits kind of comfortably within the confines of that logical order. What you're kind of talking about when, when we say super life Syrianism is this other view. So it is, and I'm just throwing this out there because we said it all, but like to hear, hear it now juxtapose. One, one very beginning, God purposed to elect some creatable men and women, that is men and women who were to be created to life and to condemn others to destruction. Two, then here's creation. So, so right. after that point, almost everything else is the same in the terms of like the sending of the Son and the Holy Spirit applying what the Son has purchased and uh, his redemptive work into or onto the elect. It's that beginning part, though, that is like a major linchpin. Like yeah. a lot of things hang on that, hang on it in our psychology, hang in our expression. And so I think there's, you've got to ask people, it's okay to ask, like, when did God foreordain all this stuff? How diligent, how disciplined, how proactive was he? Was it from the very beginning? Because like you've heard people say things, I always cracks me up when I hear somebody talking or feeling committed to like the infralapsarian worldview, which again, we're not making a, a statement about like the you know, you should go out and beat everybody up, hold supra or infra or sub or whatever. But some, have you ever heard this, have this happen where somebody you can tell has that worldview, but then they'll say something like, well, you know, salvation, that was not plan B. Yeah. That was, it was God's plan A. <laughs> right. like, well, not, not actually the way you just articulated it. Right. Like you, you, yeah. made, you made it plan B. Yeah. And, and you know, this, this is what it all boils down to for me. I suppose we'll, we'll do the RC Sproul thing. In the final analysis, here's what it all comes down to. There we go is for the supralapsarian, the supralapsarian, the prelapsarian, or the antilapsarian, right? <laughs> All of these are just different, different Greek or Latin prefixes. But there we go. for the supralapsarian, God does not decree to save sinners. Right. He decrees for some to be created as elect. Yes. And then... Then he figures out after the fall, that's kind of a, that's kind of a cheap way to say it. No, then he I, I decrees the fall, right? And then he chooses the means to bring them back to a state of life. Yes. But he, he decrees them, he decrees to create them in a privileged state. And then the fall happens and then he, he brings about and decrees the means, the salvation of those who started off in a privileged state. And again, there are there are good biblical reasons to believe that. There are good biblical arguments and and systematic arguments that are made and can be made that support this. So it's not like I'm saying these people are stupid or anything like that. Of course, right. What I think the more biblical view though, and the one that comports with confessional view, the one that comports with good reformed sensibilities about how salvation actually functions is that on the infralapsarian view or the postlapsarian view or the sublapsarian view after the fall, the, the decree of election happens after the fall of you. 
on that view, God is not just decreeing to have people in different categories. He's actually decreeing to bring about the salvation of the elect. So in the, the, the superlapsarian view, the decree to create and the decree to elect are actually one in the same decree in most exactly. formulations. In the infralapsarian view, the decree to save and the decree to elect are the ones that are actually the same decree. Right. And so this is what we talked about last week, right? In actual election and reprobation and how that unfolds in time, we agree that God is actively ha- actively working in both, but he's actively working in one sense to bring about the salvation of the elect, and he's actively working in the other sense to withdraw himself from the reprobate, allowing them to fall further and further and further into sin, right? That's not symmetrical, on the superlapsarian view, what you have is God's decree of election and God's decree of re- reprobation are exactly symmetrical. He's creating some as elect and creating some as reprobate, and that is exactly the same action. It's just creating them in different categories. But the action is symmetrical. The decree is symmetrical. On the infralapsarian view, the decree to save is an active, these are the things I'm going to do to bring about the restoration of these people. And the decree to reprobate is the decree to say, I'm going to withdraw myself from these people. I'm, I'm decreeing that I will withdraw myself, my gracious sin restraining presence away from these people. So the decrees in that sense, and I think this is the main strength of this view and why it is actually something that's a little more instinctive once you get your head around how salvation works. The decree in the infralapsarian view more closely lines up with the actual way that God saves right? The decree of election is concrete and actual. He's decreeing the actual means to actually save actual people in his, you know, people he has already in his mind is considering individual people, not just categories. That is much closer to how we understand definite atonement to work, right? Right. God actually saves people, right? That's the main thing we say in the Armenians. God didn't, Christ didn't die just to make you savable, He didn't die just to provide the possibility of salvation. He died to actually save his people. Well, in my mind, it, it, it makes better sense of the the biblical data to say that God's way of decreeing and God's way of executing things is actually aligned with each other rather than saying, God, I'm doing all these hand motions that even Jesse can't see because they're not in front of the camera (laughs) rather than saying, I've got my hands facing the same direction that God's decree to a decree of salvation is facing the same direction. It's parallel to his actual execution of that decree. Right. Where on the superlapsarian view, his decree of election is actually reversed from his actual execution of that decree in time. And there, like I said, there are, there are good biblical reasons why people make an argument that that, that sort of flipping reality there, that that's present. Um, and I I don't, I don't believe them, obviously. I I don't buy them. Um, but I understand why we get to that spot. But at the end of the day, my biblical instinct, as it's been refined by the reformed confessions is that God chose to save sinners he didn't choose to privilege some people irrespective of sin and to to reject others irrespective of sin. Um, and, and, you know, this this might be a little bit of a caricature, but I actually don't think so because I remember I did a paper on Beza in, in um, seminary, and Beza was kind of one of the architects of this superlapsarian view. Beza actually sees the fall as God's way of justifying his condemnation of the reprobate. So it's not really 
uh, it's not really so much that the fall is what condemns people. It's that the fall is what make God's, it's what makes God's condemnation of people just, as opposed to being the source and origin of God's condemnation. And for me, that was just too far of a bridge to cross. I just couldn't get to a point where I could say that God condemns people apart from sin and that then he brings about the fall or he decrees the fall to happen to then justify that condemnation. That did not seem like the God of the Bible that I was reading about. In infralapsarianism, God decrees the fall, which brings all men into this fallen estate, and then he graciously elects to bring some people out of that fallen state, not because of some prior category that they were, logically prior category that they were in, but because he was choosing them in that degree of election and the decree of salvation that that's actually one act of choosing and ordaining the salvation of a group of people. So it, it, again, it's it's shades of nuance, but it has all of these different implications for how we think about salvation, how we think about how I think about someone who I believe is not going to be saved. I don't look at them and see someone who's who not only is in a different category of people, but even in the eternal mind of God, in his very initial conceptualization this person was always necessarily in a different category than the elect. To me, that just doesn't seem like what the, what the Bible reveals about God. Others disagree and I get that, but it just, I just can't get there. Right. I'm with you. You can see how I would say like, not necessarily historically, um, like historical confessions would. So throwing those out for a second, I'm throwing out a big swath here, but I'm just saying like, you could see how people who have maybe not examined those would be tempted to go the route of super solipsarianism because it seems like on the face, the one that like commits you to the ultimate expression of God's sovereignty from the very beginning, as if to say there's somehow weakness in an infralapsarian view that says God originated to save those logically after the fall. But I think if you're hard pressed, at least to me, the scriptures are practically infralapsarian. You see yeah. that, I think, in a lot of the language in which Christians are spoken about being chosen out of the world, like John 15 comes to mind, or this metaphor of the potter having this right over the clay to from the same lump to make one part a vessel onto honor, another onto yeah. dishonor. And the elect and the non-elect are regarded, I think, in the scriptures as being originally in a common state of misery. So suffering and death are uniformly represented as the wages of sin. And so that infralapsarianism, that scheme naturally commends itself to justice and mercy. And it is at least, and I've heard argument this way, and this is not true, it is at least free from the Arminian objection that God simply creates some men in order right. to damn them. So right. you kind of get away from that altogether. So infralapsarians believe that it was from the mass of fallen men that there were some elected to eternal life while others were sentenced to eternal death for their sins without some kind of pre-classification, which I think you've already really articulated well. So you all are reasonable people. This is the kind of thing that you ought to process. Think about, go back into the scriptures, look through the confessions, see what those who come before, especially those who moderated this and debated it within the group setting what they kind of settled on as their view on this. And again, it is a tender thing to know that above all, God is in control, that he sits superintendingly and authoritatively on the throne and that all things are held in his hand, that salvation itself is the gift that God secures and has secured for those whom he has called onto himself. And I think that practically we understand this if in only the way in which we approach God and plead before him. So when, of course, we are called to go boldly into the throne room of God and ask all that we would desire from him, even as he refines our prayers by the presence of his indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that we find ourselves 
in times of great need for ourselves or for others, especially in the ailment that involves our bodies and our health, pleading with God to come in and to arrest something, to remove cancer, to heal up what is broken, to sustain something that has been injured, that there we're asking for this sovereignty and this providence of God to come in and to wipe out all other sense of control, that everything that belongs to the one who has created all things would bow beneath him in obedience. And what's fascinating is... I think we find ourselves praying the exact same way when it comes to the salvation of our loved ones, which of course is above even the tender care that we'd ask God to give them in their physical lives. So even there, I've seen well-intentioned Arminians and just moderate evangelicals pray the same things that I pray. And in that moment, you sense that there isn't aligning with the theology of the scriptures with the heart attitude there actually in the reverse order, in the sense that it's not that because we have a feeling that now we understand the scriptures to be correct, but because we understand something in this muscle memory about who God is, how he saves, what he does, and how powerful he is, that we in that moment, in desperation, become perfectly aligned and ask that God would break the will of somebody yeah. who we know is a, that is a destructive will that is set against him, that we want the covenant breaker, even and especially if that is ourselves, to be brought into full harmony in relationship with God and that he would do it even as we might fight against him. So that's why all of this matters. That's why understanding yeah. where you place yourself and your understanding of these logical decrees shapes, basically it, it shaped, of course, you're standing in the midst of where you believe the logical decree to take place. And so when you stand in that place, you can yet see one perspective. And so it's important just to know where you are standing and to test that. Test it over and over again. Come to the scriptures. Again, you got to get yourself pickled, right? We're, you and I were just trying to pickle. Part of our conversations is the pickling happening, just washing yep. over us. Now so this pickle. is all really, really good stuff. So hopefully nobody will ever accuse us of saying that. Uh, though we've done all these different types of series, and of course we're trying to root ourselves in some pretty deep and tender and also technical theological things. Nobody ever say we never tried to get to a place where it actually matters in our lives. Yeah. Yeah, and one thing I want to emphasize as as we close this out here is this is one of those weird topics that is, you know, you probably know this more than I do growing up with brothers. Um, you tend to fight more with the people in your family than you do with people outside your family. Like the, the, right. the brothers that you're closest to, you, you tend to have like the hardest fights with. Um, I, that's true in Christianity too, right? I'm, I'm going to have a more aggressive... I tend to have arguments that are more heat than light when I'm, when I'm dealing with someone who is very close to me theologically, because the things that we disagree on are, are usually relatively minor points, but because we're so similar, those things tend to cause more conflict and friction. And this, this is one of those things where, although there are significant differences and I feel like we've, we've, thoroughly explain some of the differences and some of the implications of those differences. At the end of the day, these these are two relatively similar kinds of positions within a broader Reformed tradition. And so even though I think it's important to parse this stuff out, I also think it's important to recognize that for the superlapsarian who looks at their infralapsarian brother and makes some sort of snide comment that, well, you just think that God's reacting to the fall, or for the infralapsarian who looks at their superlapsarian brother and makes some sort of snide comment about God actually being what the Arminians accuse you that he is, right? I think that's one of the implications actually is that the caricature of Arminianism 
against Reformed theology actually lands harder on the superlapsarian than it does on the infralapsarian, and you, you mentioned that. But for the person who looks at that and sort of gets smug about that, you should remember that our Reformed confessions, the Westminster particularly, was a consensus document that included signers who were both superlapsarian right. and also right. infralapsarian. And we didn't do it because we're out of time, but you could go to chapter three on the eternal decrees and you could read one statement and it sounds exactly like the superlapsarian view. And then you could read another statement and it sounds exactly like the infralapsarian view. And that's not because the Westminster divines were idiots and just didn't know what they were doing. It's because they were very intentionally weaving together a document that properly understood could embrace both views. And that's because they understood that this is a view that should both views can live within the broader reformed world. It's a historical fact that the infralapsarian view is a more prominent view across the history of reformed theology. But there's never really been a time in what we might call quote unquote reformed theology. There's never been a time where either of those views was absent or when either of those views didn't have significant voices articulating and arguing for them. So this is important stuff. It's important stuff for us to think about. It affects how we think about the gospel. It affects how we think about salvation. And that means it affects how we live out our lives and how we present and share the gospel. But this is not something that should ever be used as a bludgeon to try to divide ourselves from other Reformed Christians. There are much bigger, more important things going on in theology to argue against and to separate over. I think some separation on theological issues is warranted and helpful. I mean, Paul sure. says that. I know that there must be factions among you, and he says that because he knows some people are wrong and some people are right, and these divisions right. are necessary to show that there is someone wrong and is someone right. right. This is not one of those things. This really isn't, brothers and sisters. So although it's important for us to talk about it, and it, there's always going to be that guy that's like, you guys are idiots. You can't talk about this because it's dumb and the Bible never answers this question. That's a valid view we need to think about too, right? If someone sure. as prominent as Herman Bovink can say that, we can't say, well, that's just because you're dumb and you haven't thought about this. Well, obviously Herman Bovink had thought about this, right? So we have to have some grace for each other, but at the same time, we can't just act as though this stuff doesn't matter because it does. It's important right. and it's part of the discussion. If you're going to think about a God, you're going to conceptualize a God who has exhaustively ordained all things that come to pass, you're going to have to think about this stuff. And if you're going to talk about this stuff, you've already committed yourself to one position or the other, whether you like it or think it you have or not, you already have. Because if you say God chose to save sinners, you've committed yourself to an Armenian or to Armenian. Oh man, I need to take a nap <laughs> or something. If you say God chose in eternity past to save sinners, you've already committed yourself to an infralapsarian view. Right. If you say something like God in eternity past uh, chose some to eternal life and yes. and ordained how to restore them to that eternal life after the fall, you've already, I mean, I don't know who would say that. That's a pretty clunky sentence, but right. you've already <laughs> committed yourself to a, a superlapsarian view. And, and the people who uh, don't recognize that, they're the people that end up being inconsistent in one way or another. So think about this stuff, read our confessions, read the scriptures. Um, and again, there are there are statements in the scriptures that depending on how you read it and depending what other presuppositions, scriptural presuppositions you've brought to the table is going to lean you one way or another, right? Ephesians 1 feels very much like, uh, like infralapsarianism. Mm -hmm. Romans 8 feels a little bit more like superlapsarianism. And so we have to understand 
that these are difficult topics and good Christians who love the Lord and study the Bible, even the ones that are really pickled in the Bible, come to different positions on this. Right. That's absolutely true. But you know what the great thing is about talking about this, this particular topic is you can have the conversation knowing that the Bible doesn't explicitly answer this. And so like you should be able to sit down and have hugged and then get up and hug after that conversation with somebody yes. with whom you might even vehemently disagree because in the end to, again, I've been quoting R.C. Sproul all along, but didn't know it in the final analysis, really <laughs> this drives us to greater praise and worship about God, who he is and how he is over all things. So like, this is kind of like the no one loses topic. I, I you know what I mean? Like this is one where you can grab a cup of coffee, you can sit down with a brother or sister, even if you want to have it out, do it in a way that's polite, loving, and respectful. But but in the end, know that like you're both in the same team, like literally both in the same team. Can't not be on the same team on this because we're talking about at the end of the day, the sovereignty of God over His yeah. creation and salvation. So it's just like a great place to be. This is like the safety net combo. Like you know what I mean? Like you just can't. There are other things again, like you're saying, where you might have a conversation with somebody in the back of your mind thinking. Am I going to have to die on this hill? And, and this is the kind of thing I'm going to have to separate and be like, that's just wrong. Get out. Stop it. This is not that topic. Not so that you can topic. have it. Yeah. In a way that that's super loving. And speaking of like getting coffee, let's end with this. I was going to like explicitly thank another person who went to the Reformed Brotherhood store by going to reformedbrotherhood.com and purchased for themselves a beautiful, very handsome 15 ounce mug, which you could use and fill with coffee for this very conversation with a friend. But then I started thinking about this. What if somebody is like purchasing this for like a gift? And these are like common listeners. And I was like, <laughs> nah, I can't be just like dropping people's names. Cause somebody's going to be like, Oh, I know a person by that name. Oh, they also listen to the podcast. Oh, I wanted a mug. I, so I just want to know, sister, we see you. You're getting a nice, handsome mug that's going to be sent to you. It's, it's going to be great. Use it with great joy. Give it with great joy. But I realized I don't want to be that, that guy. Don't that's be that like, guy. Yeah. Right? Is that a reasonable yeah. concern? It, it Probably not, but it, it is what it is. <laughs> I have the, to, to maybe end this on a light note, um, I have this picture in my, my head, right? Because when you said in the end, in my head, I heard Linkin Park going, it didn't even matter. <laughs> So Linkin Park is this like grungy emo band. Everything's depressing. It's like kids hiding in the corner crying. Uh, I have this image in my head of like not Linkin Park, but like a boy band version of Linkin Park. And they're singing this really poppy song. And it's in the end, it really actually mattered. And that's like the motto of this episode is like, it may feel like some of this stuff doesn't even matter, but it actually really matters. So I want you to picture in sync or Backstreet Boys singing on cover of Lincoln Park, it didn't even matter, or in the end, I don't know what it's called, but instead it actually even mattered. That was really stretched out and tortured. I don't know if that landed at all, but somebody write that song and change it from a minor key to a major key. <laughs> I would really like to hear that if you've got some musical chops. Listen, speaking of musical chops, which I'm not necessarily saying that I have, I do have some street credit in this area. In fact, somebody recently posted on our Facebook group. Because you were in a boy band in high school? In no. <laughs> No. Somebody start that rumor. That's now part of my confession. Um, somebody actually put a, a link up or uh, made a recommendation that was in the vein of my recommendations, which I appreciated. They actually noted that. So that being the case, I do just have to call out 
We really can't call Lincoln Park emo, but I know exactly what you're referring to there. This yeah, kind of, I know, I know, I know. I was for not referring record, to the musical category. For the record, I was I know, referring but, to the emotional angst present in the lyrics and in but the song. What's funny is after all the things we talked about in this particular conversation, that will be the thing which people will email us about and yeah, say, "It's true." Actually, just wanted to correct that. So I actually we like know emo people. music, so I get it. You do or you I don't? Understand. I do. Oh, Dashboard yeah. Confessional was yeah, like was my jam say, yeah, yeah. in college. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm with you on that. So loved ones, you heard it here. Of course you can go and check out reformbrotherhood.com. Again, anything that's purchased on that little store that we have set up, that's kind of like a perpetual drive, so to speak. Like we are thankful for those who want to support the podcast and get some kind of swag. And of course, some of those proceeds actually go back into making this thing free for everybody. So we're super thankful. If you have an inclination, go check it out. You can just go do that. So Grab that cup of coffee. Go have a friend. Go go say to somebody, "Are you supra or infralapsarianism?" And when they're like, "Huh?" Be like, "Grab a cup of coffee let's and let's talk. and sit down and do it. Just have some fun. Explain it and have some fun." So until you do that, and until we talk next time, let's honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. What is-